What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of FilmmakerU.com. And every week we bring you an interview with a film professional to discuss the craft of filmmaking. And of course, this week is no different. I'm interviewing Leo Berenberg and Zach Robinson, who are the composers for Weird, the Al Yankovic story. If you haven't seen Weird, please do yourself a favor and go watch Weird. For lack of a better word, it is weird. But it is also a fun look. It is a parody at Weird Al's life. And we're going to talk about how do you come up with the sound or the music, a parody artist. Now, if you like these interviews, be sure to check out filmmakeru.com for all our courses where we bring in the industry best to discuss the craft of filmmaking. You can get 10% off by using the promo code the cutting room, all one word, the cutting room at filmmakeru.com. Now, with all that said, here's my interview with Leo and Zach to discuss Weird, the Ali Yankovic story. I guess my first question for you guys is how do you guys approach a project together? Like how do you guys like to work together on creating the sound for shows and movies? We, we actually give a lot of thought to things that we do together versus like pursue in our own right. Uh, Because we think together we make like a pretty awesome combo team. Like we're the fun guys. We like to say like people, people tend to reach out to us when they want to do something and this is an actual quote from a music executive, batshit crazy. Um, or if they want to like merge popular music, like, like whether that's contemporary popular music or from a certain era with kind of like a more big film score mentality or, or just kind of like giving it more of a scoring heart, even if it's not big. Um, and so we tend to tackle a broad array of projects, all of which our goal is like, is the audience going to be having fun while they're listening to the music? That's like our criteria. And so everything we do, we try to approach it from that point. And uh, we collaborate a lot to come up with those sounds. Um, you know, we, uh, we have very similar kind of technical setups from a tech perspective. So it's easy for us to trade files back and forth. We don't share a studio. We both work out of our own houses and basically just FaceTime each other all day while we are jamming and coming up with ideas and trading ideas and stealing each other's ideas. Like it's a, uh, it's, it's a great collaborative process. Cause you sort of talk about batshit crazy. Uh, you guys worked on weird. So definitely qualifies. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm wondering like, because when I watch it, it's like, depending on the scene, it seems like the composition in the background is going to change like style so it's not like usually in a movie it's like here's the sort of style we're going for whereas this it's you know like when he learns my bologna it's got like accordion at the start and then there's like this sort of spielbergian realization moment and then there's this when he meets madonna it's piano and violin so like how did you guys approach this project and figure out you know what scene was going to have sort of what style well credit to to eric the director eric appel and and Al too, and Eric really had this vision of weird being this kind of like, as Leo likes to put it, this great American hero story. And we really wanted, you know, they, they, he, he tempts, uh, you know, with, with not original music when they were editing, he tempts it with like Forrest Gump, um, that very kind of early nineties, like Alan Silvestri, Thomas Newman sound. Mm-hmm. And that immediately, I mean, it worked 
immediately, but it also like, we understood the assignment quite quickly. And I think that was kind of the foundation was let's, let's do a very sincere orchestral, like Americana film score. And, you know, the Spielberg thing that you mentioned is for sure a part of that. Um, and I think it sets the tone for the whole movie. And Eric has talked about how that scene, like the My Bologna scene is really one of the first times where the audience is like, oh, this is the movie that I'm in. Like, this is a very, uh, you know, it, it communicates the heaviness and like the intensity of what the score can be. And like, uh, then as you go kind of, as the movie progresses, it gets more unhinged and the music does need to reflect, the score needs to reflect kind of the like unhingedness that is happening in the, uh, in the movie. And yeah, the, the Madonna makeout scene, you know, the diner fight, the, the trip to, to Latin America, like all of those things we seized upon very quickly uh, to figure out like what's the what's the best kind of like what is the highest octane musical version of score that we can do here and it always worked because like you could never go big enough um, with this movie yeah that, now, this film can support a lot from the score yeah. you sort of mentioned a bit before that Weird Al was in, involved was he involved in the composing in any way not obviously not doing the composing but giving you feedback on it yeah he was in uh, We'd go over to Eric's cutting room for a meeting and I would be on Zoom because they'd be like working on the cut before we got there. And then we'd sit down and chat music and play some cues. And then Al, who was on tour at the time, like he would always be Zooming in from like Wisconsin or Nebraska. Because like when Al does a tour, he's like the everyman. He goes everywhere. It's mm -hmm. honestly freaking amazing. Um, and he would then just be like, oh, guys, I got to go. Uh, I got to go play my show. I'll be back in two hours. And he would just like log off and then come back two hours later having just played a full concert. Um, he's the nicest guy. Um, probably the biggest note he had the whole time was actually for the very last scene in the movie, the like in memoriam montage. Uh, we kind of, our first version of that, we did this like very kind of up-tempo, like almost like a retro end credits, like here's all the friends we made along the way style cue. Um, and Al very smartly thought that it would play better being like extremely serious elegy. Um, and so then we did that and it was a lot funnier. So, so we went for that. Basically there was, there was this constant, um, it wasn't even like a push pull because we committed to it pretty quickly, but like the score is always playing like the straight man in the background of this scene. And oh, sorry, not this scene, this movie. And whenever we tried to do anything too lighthearted, it just like didn't quite work right. And that's kind of the biggest example of that. Like it just plays better when it's like serious and tragic. <laughs> Well, and I guess you, you never question uh, Weird Al. He's, he's good and you, ne and you so never question true. Weird Al. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a, a temper, as we saw in the movie. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah. He's the weird one. Yeah. What, uh, did, have you guys seen him live before? Or? Yeah, he was my first concert ever. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, when I was like eight. But I haven't seen him since then. I haven't seen him since we worked together. Um, that would be really fun. Yeah, because I've heard his concerts are pretty crazy. I think the last tour that he did was like very like unplugged version. He was playing like his originals and the tour had like a funny name. It was like the songs you don't want to hear or something like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't remember. What it was. It's actually kind of like, honestly, what like the, 
Daniel Radcliffe in the movie. Like he doesn't want to do parodies anymore. Yeah, he wants to be an, an artist. Yeah, the the Al acoustic rebrand. Yeah, going going through that phase. <laughs> you talked about you know you're you're both in separate locations, but like when you're creating this the music, do you like to do you guys tend to stick to synthesizers and sort of creating you know like the here's my strings and stuff or do you guys create it and then go to an orchestra or go to a, a larger piece for it um it's latter, a bit of everything latter. but like yeah. mostly the latter we kind of make these extravagant demos that are not the final product but reflect all of the intention of the excuse me final product um and so we write you know a bunch of we call it mock-up orchestra in that but then in this movie case, and honestly, most projects now, we we record um, the final product with a real orchestra. We used like an 80-piece orchestra for this in oh, Budapest. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. It, you know, huge. It, it, it's got to sound cinematic. Um, so we pulled out all the stops and uh, you can you can really hear it. It's It's the type of score that wouldn't really work if you used a smaller orchestra because then it would just feel like oh they like kind of tried to do it but it, you know this doesn't sound like et but like you need it to like you need it to to be forrest gump you need it to, to for the for the joke to play it's gotta be committed to the full size thing um so it's great that that you know we we told the producers that early on and, and everyone made it work. And, and that's yeah. great. And no one, no one believes you when they, when, when no one has worked <laughs> with an orchestra before, they don't believe you that it, our mock-ups are pretty good. Like if you heard it, I'm not, you probably, you know, if you really listened, you'd hear that it's fake, but like they're pretty good. And to that, to, to a lot of people, like that's good enough. And when you're like crunched for time and money, it's good enough. But we, but yeah, as Leo said, we very early on, we're like, y'all need to find the money to do this because this is the vision of eric's vision like this is part mm. of the vision and uh and even eric like when he was like these are pretty good you know like the the mock-ups and we're like just just wait till you hear it and i don't think he'll, he'll never go back now you know yeah it's like yeah, no way there's no way you can do it after you hear the real thing what do you think it is that makes it so different like is it the acoustics of the rooms is it like the, the scale of, of there's the definitely a giant acoustic aspect to it and just kind of the setup a lot more microphone control you get a lot more depth and width to the sound but it's mostly the performance when you have 80 people kind of breathing and phrasing naturally and musically together it's just not something you can really program it's like the difference between i don't know like high level brain power and like a calculator that's just doing addition or something like like it's just a, it's it's like such a difference in computational ability um and expression and so that, yeah, that's that's kind of like the magic ingredient that makes music sound like music and why you go see you can go see you know 10 piano players play the same franz Liszt piece and they'll all sound different so that's what you're getting we work with an amazing orchestrator and an orchestrator's job, Vincent Oppido orchestrated weird. And his job or her job is to like, take our MIDI, our data from our computer that we've programmed all the music and put it on paper. And then, and he's basically translating um, the music from the computer to the paper. And then that goes, we recorded in Budapest with an amazing orchestra. 
So it's like, goes across the world, gets printed out, and then musicians read it. But the orchestrator's job is really difficult because they need to like know music very well. And they need to sometimes see our programming and say, hey, you know what? The oboe like can't play that high the way you programmed it. Or like the oboe is going to need to breathe and you didn't program kind of like breath. So there are these like little idiosyncrasies like that add up with the orchestra. Um, and it's truly like, I mean, when we sit there listening to the orchestra after we've sat with the demos for so long, it's like breathing new life into everything. It's amazing. Because like you talked about, you know, like the room plays, a, the size of the orchestra plays, all that stuff plays a part. But like, I think about, you know, like I'm in Toronto and I remember like I've seen some bands at Massey Hall, which is designed for acoustics and it sounds amazing in there. I saw Elton John a few months ago in or went on his last tour at the Sky Dome and it sounds horrible, but like <laughs> he's got to get tons of people in there. So like when you're looking for a space to record, like are you allowed to choose your space to record in and what would you look for in it for, for acoustics? We typically don't get to, but there are like, basically there's a huge technical aspect to recording a film score and setting up this many microphones. Like when you go to a concert hall, even like we're in Los Angeles and, and I live right around the corner from Disney hall, which is like one of the best acoustic rooms on the planet. Orchestra sounds unbelievable in there, but even though tons of movies get recorded in LA, I don't think a single one has recorded at Disney hall, maybe like one random film. And it's because like, they're not actually set up to like mic it all up. And when you mic an orchestra for a movie, I, I, some, I mean, you can make the argument, this is totally not necessary, um, but there's like a hundred microphones up so that you have an extreme amount of control and ability to like really have detail in the mix if you wanna bring something out and get, get a certain frequency that, that, that colors it a certain way out. Um, and so, the options are actually much more limited when you're doing a, a project in, in this world to like studios where it's set up for that kind of recording. And also like, usually there's an entire like group of filmmakers there in the studio as well. So it also needs to like have the capacity for that. So in LA, there's like three stages where you can record at really to standard. And there's like two, three more in London like that. And then several other cities where scoring happens, Berlin, Vienna, Budapest, where we did this, there's really only one or two concert halls. Um, and it's, so it's kind of predetermined for you, like what, where you can record. Yeah. I was thinking more along the lines of, I was just using those as examples. Like yeah. it's, it's so drastically different, like with the echoes and what have you. No, you guys have worked on some pretty amazing stuff like Cobra Kai, Weird. Uh, you've got Florida Man on Netflix. You've got more coming as we were talking before. If you had to go through your your canon, what would be your favorite piece that you've had to work on? Oh wow, we love all our babies. That's the, <laughs> that's the diplomatic but, answer. But you got to in film, you got to kill your darlings, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. we kill them every day. Every day. I don't know. I mean, like I, we, as Leo said, like I like this is kind of a lame answer. I feel like we we do pride ourselves on when we approach a project, we really like have a pitch together, and we say like this is like. This is the thing that we want to pitch to, you know, everyone, not just like the showrunners or whatever, like the filmmakers, like this is like, hey, we, the vision, we, we, the vision it's our vision. We, we have Spotify playlists like that we do like for every project. We just put together a bunch of stuff that we really like. And 
You know, I don't know. I think for me, maybe I, I, Cobra Kai just has a very special place in my heart. Yeah. Because like it's, we were there, you know, from the ground up with that show and uh, we had a vision and we pitched that vision to John, Josh and Hayden. They had the same vision and it's just been such a wonderful collaboration for over, you know, I mean, it's been what, like six years now. And it's just been an amazing partnership. And I, and I think like we often are working on Cobra Kai and we're like, I cannot believe that this got approved. Like that yeah. this is going to be on Netflix. That's going to get billions of minutes streamed. This piece of me, like sometimes you, when you're coming up as a young composer and you work for people and you, you, you kind of, you can see how people get jaded <laughs> and sure we get jaded sometimes too, but it is very cool to see that like we can have a, a musical vision and it can be accomplished and it can be brought to fruition. And Cobra Kai was kind of like the really, that was like the gate opening for us where we could yeah. say like, oh, we should do this on every project. Like, you know, on Florida Man, let's do like a weird kind of psychedelic acid jazz thing. Okay, and it gets approved. So like, we're that's great, we love that. <laughs> So there's a lot of, there's a lot. And Bumper in Berlin, we did some crazy stuff too. We were just like, here's our crazy vision for it. And sometimes you just have to, you just have to pitch it. And people yeah. are generally down. How would you describe your vision for Cobra Kai? Hair metal meets <laughs> Eastern mysticism meets synth wave. Well, we, yeah, you know, we talk about often that like, uh, you know, in the, in the comedy canon, like yeah. there's always a training montage no matter what you're yes. watching and you're this just kind of like and you're kind of like joking oh it's a training montage or like a super bowl commercial there's a training montage like oh, ha, 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 like funny 80s music and <laughs> cobra kai was let's do the training montage but it's actually sincere it's a sincere serious training montage and let's approach the music like that and like this is the guys treat that show like star wars and the music has evolved into that the scope of the music grows bigger and bigger with every season because it's just the music is so i mean the story is so serious to them yeah gargantuan and it's, it's gargantuan like... and we just love we love 80s music we love symphonic music we love all that stuff and this was just kind of like i i was a big like 80s music person before i even met leo like i was doing electronic music production and stuff and it was just this kind of thing where it was like this is it. Like we're doing it for the fans. <laughs> like not just us. Like this is trust yeah. us. Like this is what people want to hear. And John, Josh, and Hayden were like, "Yes, we agree with you." So wait, um, what's your what's your go to hair metal band? I know Leo's. <laughs> I like Bon Jovi. I'm a Bon, yeah. bon Jovi huge fan. Zach, Zach, could we could be here all day answering that question? I feel. Like. I love that. I'll say the ones that influence Cobra Kai the most are the Japanese hair metal bands, like. Extra oh, Japan. that would be awesome. Ex Japan is one of my my. I think about a lot of these. I mean, it's crazy. Like people that and now you're like getting me on this whole like nostalgia. Yeah. Like I just had my wedding the last like two weeks ago, and people, you know, were coming up to me that I haven't seen in a long time. Like people from like my childhood, I, I was in bands with. I was in a band called Dracula Mountain, and all of Dracula <laughs> Mountain was there. And we were like a metal band inspired by video game music. And and my friend Luke was in the band he was like dude you're just like doing exactly what you want to do and you were doing that in Dracula Mountain it's crazy that you're like doing that now because it's like a lot of Dracula Mountain stuff went into like Cobra Kai like that kind of metal symphonic metal melodic metal but like video game inspired 
and it's just it's just wild that that we get to do that and i'm very we're very fortunate (laughs) i have one last question for you what would you guys say is your favorite guilty pleasure film or tv show to watch interesting or you can also say guilty pleasure music if you'd like (laughs) well i have well Guilty pleasure music. I can listen to like brandless lo-fi for like hours, but like it starts to feel like it's all been made by AI because it's just like the tracks never begin and end and they're all two minutes long. Um, This is like not the best answer, but it's kind of related to weird. I was at a wedding last weekend uh, because this was an influence on weird. And like I was a groomsman in the wedding. So I like did the thing where I like go over to the grooms like sweet beforehand and we're all like getting changed into our taxes and someone turns on the tv and there was just like a gajillion episodes of this show about like catching tuna that everyone in america is like wicked tuna. yeah wicked tuna which is not my guilty tuna. pleasure but after yeah. watching that for like three hours someone picked up the remote and started flipping through the channel and landed on like the last 20 minutes of shawshank redemption and like just 15 men all half dressed in tuxes just all stopped exactly what they were doing and like sat on the couch just like absorbed by the last 15 minutes of that movie that was pretty awesome (laughs) it feels like uh tbs bought the rights for or the windows for like 30 years because whenever i'm somewhere where tbs is on it's like on yes Yes. this was probably tbs yeah how about yourself zach I'm a big believer that guilty pleasures don't exist, that everyone should like what they want to like. But I will say that I did just crush Selling Sunset um, with my wife, uh, like over a five day period. And that is some trashy television, but (laughs) I really enjoyed it. And uh, Leo and I both love smooth jazz, non-ironically. Like we both listen to smooth jazz all the time. I love, I like legit love Kenny G. I don't know, but I don't consider that a guilty pleasure. I'll ride and die with Kenny all day. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you today, guys. Of course. Thank you. So that was my interview with Leo and Zach. I'd like to thank them for allowing me to interview them. I'd also like to thank my editor, Evan Winch, as well as my producer, Jason Banky. I'm Gordon Raquel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>